Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word is life. We thank you that you are working your goodwill in us through the the revelation of your word. God, we thank you for the promises that have been laid before us in Jude's letter today. We thank you that you are a God that keeps us from stumbling and that your intention for those of us who believe is to present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. And so God, as we persevere through days of struggle and times of confusion and frustration and and God, just affliction, we thank you that this is not what life is always going to be like. That there is a day coming when you will make all things new, when you will rule and reign over the cosmos that you have created. And God, we will, we will be there with you forever in perfect joy. And we thank you for that promise. Lord, I pray that as I present the word today, that you would be with me, that you would be a guard around me, that you would set a watchman on my lips, Lord, that I wouldn't say anything that would uh, discredit you, anything that would uh, defame your glory, Lord God, but that I would be an agent of your truth this morning. I thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. How good was it to see Marcia Selassie at church today? Good to see you, Marcia. Marcia is one of our faithful, and she has worked since May, you said. Yeah, just been pretty much out of the loop uh, because of, of, of a work schedule, and she's back, and we're certainly glad to have her. Good to have Natalie's family here, and it's Christy and Neely, is that right? Okay, good to have them here, and all the way from Missouri. Did I say that right? <laughs> we mostly say Missouri, but I just figured I'd, I'd kind of get do as the Romans do, I guess. But good, good to have you here this morning. Um, and uh, so we're, we're wrapping up our um, series in Jude. Uh, when I told Daryl Edwards that I was going to do a series in Jude, um, he thought, well, you know, we'll make this in a couple of weeks. Well, he underestimated me. I turned it into a five, 25 verses into a five-week series. So, uh, Daryl, we're, we're crossing the finish line today, baby. So, um, so for five messages, Jude is not a happy-go-lucky book, right? For five messages, what we've been doing is we've really been focusing on Jude's stern warnings about and descriptions of false teachers, false prophets, false believers. The central theme that we've returned to over and over and over again of Jude's exhortation has been to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And what Jude is telling us with those simple words is this, we cannot Listen to me carefully. We cannot play fast and loose with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus has to be has to be firm. It has to be concrete. We have to be convinced of it. We have to consume it. We have to learn it. We have to love it. We have to dedicate ourselves to the two terms that we've been keep talking about over and over to defining it, rightly defining it, and there uh, and after that defending it. The gospel that we're dedicated to must be the only genuine gospel. And let me make certain you understand what I'm saying. There is only one genuine gospel. 
We have to be dedicated to the genuine gospel, not some cheap counterfeit. This is affirmed over and over in Scripture. Uh, Ephesians 5.11, for example, says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, rather, expose them. What we call Christianity should always be the exact same thing that was accomplished for us by Jesus on the cross when he walked out of the empty tomb, when he ascended into heaven, and that which was delivered to us in the apostles' teaching. That is the gospel that we're concerned with this morning. We can't tolerate any new spins on old themes. We can't tolerate any entirely new revelations calling themselves the gospel. Remember, Jude's concern was the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And what that means, once for all, are powerful words in Scripture. And what it means is that the, the, this message of the gospel that we have been handed never needs to be new and improved. Never. It never needs to be edited. It never needs to be updated. It never needs to be revised in any way. And now, Judas turning a corner a little bit. He's, he's not just warning about the poison, the venom of false teachers, but he's turning to encouragement for his readers. And he's showing them that there is more to contending for the faith than just identifying and refuting false teachers, as important as that is. But if that's all we do, and you can look on the internet, there are plenty of people that have made a living just refuting false teachers. And if that's all you do, you run the risk of becoming arrogant and you drive people away that desperately need the truth of this gospel that was once for all delivered for the saints. And so here is what the scriptures tell us. This is Jude's counsel to us to, on, the, on the positive side, to not just, you know, have a list of false teachers and be ready to, to discredit them, but he says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Now Jude, like Peter and Paul before him in the scriptures, have compared the saints to uh, the, the saints in the church as being built up. He, he uses these constru this construction language. He's saying they're being built up like a, a, a temple or a house. He says the foundation of this temple or of this house is the faith. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's speaking here again of the cumulative teaching of Jesus and of his uh, prophets and of his apostles. Now, even defining the gospel, as I said earlier, in order to defend it, can fall short of what we all need for our flourishing. What do I mean by that? I mean, you can be an expert in doctrine. You can understand arguments of Calvinism and Arminianism and, and, and all kinds of big words that theologians like to use. You can understand it all. But what Jude is telling us, please listen to this. Especially if you're an armchair theologian, listen to this. What Jude is telling us is that we must also have a vibrant personal experience of the gospel in order to be distinct from false teachers. He's saying that this gospel that he's telling us to define and defend cannot just be a theoretical argument in the, in the arena of philosophy. It has to be something that has personally affected me, that is transforming my life from glory to glory into the image of the Son. 
And so building yourselves up means actively living in the kingdom. And Jude is going to show us how this is done. He says, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, praying, keeping, waiting. Now notice, I love this, notice the Trinitarian structure of Jude's admonition. If you look carefully enough throughout all the, the writings past the Gospels and Acts, you will notice over and over again, the writers of the epistles will appeal to the Trinity to back up what they're saying. What I mean by this is in this verse, he mentions praying in the Holy Spirit. He mentions keeping ourselves in the love of God and of waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God, Jesus. He's showing, now I don't want you to miss what this is all about. He's showing us that all of God is utterly, completely, entirely connected to the work of building yourselves up in your most holy faith. So, and the reason he's telling you that is because if you're like me, and I hope none of you are, but I suspect some of you are, if you're like me, you really make a really good go at trying to build yourself up and forgetting that even the building of myself up in my most holy faith is really the work of God himself. It's really the work of God. It's not laid on my shoulders. It's attributed to him. We are not left. And this is, this is a glorious truth this morning. We are not left to struggle towards God on our own. Good message. So first, let's break this down. We're told to be praying in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Now, if I were to take time out of the message to survey you, I might get three or four opinions about what praying in the Holy Spirit means. You might think that it means to pray with lofty language, or you might think it means to pray in some mystical or mysterious state, or even to pray using the the, the gift of tongues um, or a heavenly language. But I want to tell you that I don't think it means any of those things. Now, I hide behind the pulpit before you guys throw the rocks. I have too many holes in the pulpit. It probably wouldn't work anyway. I don't think it means any of those things. I think to pray in the Spirit, to pray in the Holy Spirit, means to pray in harmony with the Holy Spirit. To pray with the same agenda, the same end goal that the Holy Spirit has. It means to align myself with the heart of the Spirit instead of pursuing my own unique and often selfish agenda. And the good news for you who don't know about all this tongue stuff, the good news for you is what what Jude is saying is you don't need any particular spiritual gift to pray in the Spirit. And that's good news. Because if you don't have some mystical gift... I believe you all have a gift, but you don't need a particular one to just obey what Jude's telling us to. He's saying that no spiritual gift is required to pray in the Spirit. Listen, what he's saying is you must simply belong to Jesus in order to pray in the Spirit. See, if you you belong to Christ, biblically, you have the Holy Spirit. That's all that's required. Being being one of Christ's own. Listen, it says just as much in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, In Him you also, when you heard 
the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So what's required? Hearing and believing. Hearing and believing. That's it. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's good news. It's good news. See, I used to believe, from my background, that the Holy Spirit only came to people who, who experienced some sort of second blessing. But the Scriptures clearly teach that the Holy Spirit is the blessed and promised gift to all believers. You cannot, listen to me carefully, mark my words, I can prove it biblically, in fact I just did, you cannot be a Christian and not have the Spirit of God. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, you are not a Christian. So he says, prayer, pray in the Spirit. So concerning prayer, this is what the Scripture tells us about praying in the Spirit. It says in Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Now pause. Pause in the passage and, and ask yourself this. Have you ever approached a time of prayer in weakness? Anybody ever in this building of holy saints, the collection of the most godly people in Lubbock, has anybody ever been distracted by the most dumb thoughts in the middle of a time you were trying to pray? Now, whisper this. Whisper your answer to this question because I don't want your neighbor to hear you. Have you ever fallen asleep while you were trying to pray? Anybody in the house? Or is it just... Or are we not the most holy collection of saints, just the most sinful pastor in the the place? Listen, we all, because of sin, we all come to the place of prayer and weakness. Can we just admit that right now? There's no thundering prophets in the room right now. We all come to the place of prayer and weakness. But the, but the Bible tells us this. It says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't even know what we ought to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So what is Paul telling us in Romans 8? He's saying that praying in the Holy Spirit means to abandon selfishness and pretense and cold religious ceremony and to depend on the Holy Spirit to give power and direction to my praying. See, sometimes my praying is just this muttered, string of sentence fragments and yet the holy spirit sometimes somehow rather by his grace will just empower them to be effective for the kingdom of god when i don't even know where to begin sometimes he'll just redirect my praying right to the right place for the right moment have you ever experienced that Or is your prayer, because of misunderstanding or even laziness, is it limited to just now I lay me down to sleep type prayers? Don't misunderstand me. Please don't misunderstand me. I am not suggesting even for a second that the powerful prayer is about your posture, whether you're kneeling or laying on your face. Standing up, it's not about your posture, it's not about your particular words, whether you use King James English or, or, you know, Texan slang. It's not about, you know, the intensity of your passion. It's about spirit-infused faith. 
And what that looks like is not, spirit-infused faith doesn't mean like I I feel like four, so now I'm spiritually infused in my faith. What spirit-infused faith is, is like, Lord, I'm coming here fully aware of all of my weakness, my stammering, my, my, uh, you know, just failure to even communicate with anybody else, let alone the creator of the universe. And yet I trust, Lord, that because I'm praying in the spirit, you're going to empower my praying. Praying in the Holy Spirit may only involve a cry or a longing as opposed to some eloquent speech, but it's filled with faith in God's ability. That's how you know you're praying in the Holy Spirit, because even if you can't get the words all right, you know that God is able. That's praying in the Holy Spirit. It's fully trusting that what God has said in Scripture is true. So let me just recommend this week as you pray, and I hope you all pray, instead of rushing headlong into your laundry list, I'll just begin by asking the Spirit to empower your praying. See, the false teachers were just the exact opposite of what I'm talking about now. Remember Jude's words? He said that the false teachers were grumblers. They were malcontents. They were following their own sinful desires. They were loud-mouthed boasters. Their praying, when they prayed, was simply for show. It was, it was utterly powerless. But the prayers of the saints are effective and powerful, as James says, because they're directed by the Spirit of God Himself. Moving on, Jude next instructs us to keep ourselves in the love of God. Again, I don't know about you, but the language of this, keep yourselves in the love of God, could be troubling because if you're like me, you're convinced that you're not very good at keeping yourself in a spiritual state. You can be driving on loop 289, praying, music, worship music, cranking away. Then some idiot cuts me off and I am not keeping myself in the love of God very well. I think I saw you guys out there this week. Listen, just like I said about prayer, there are many, many, many worldly, fleshly, and devilish distractions that try to seduce me away from my first love constantly. Anybody relate? Am I all alone? Is this just a confession of one this morning? There's a lot of things that try to seduce me away from my first love, which is Jesus. I often find myself drawn away even when my intentions are the best. So what do I do with all this wavering? What do I do with it? Well, here's the good news. When it says to keep myself or keep yourself in the love of God, the Greek word here is probably better translated guard. Guard yourself in the love of God as opposed to keep yourself in the love of God. Do you understand the difference? Keeping myself requires all the effort to, uh, to... you know, do the work of of staying placed in the love of God. But when I guard myself in the love of God, the idea is that I am taking refuge in the love of God, that I am centering myself in the love of God as though the love of God, which it is, is a fortress all around me. High castle walls defended on every side. That's what it means to keep yourself in the love of God. Don't budge from the love of God. Guard yourself in the love of God. See, we're not, being able, we're not being told here to keep ourselves in the love of God by some strenuous effort, but rather that we trust in God's love. And that trusting in God's love supplies confidence to our faith. 
It's when we say, I don't know much. I don't know why this idiot just cut me off. But I know I'm loved by God. I know God loves me. And I know that I am not here because of my own effort, but I am here because of the love of God that found me when I was unlovable. And he poured out his love on me, his mercy on me, his grace on me. What Jude is telling us is to never trust in our own righteousness for our salvation, but to rather trust only in the grace and the working of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. We delight in the fact that God's love is the reason we are saved and not our spiritual revelation, our searching, our effort. But it's God's love that's the reason we're saved. It's not anything about what we are or what we can do. We know that we have nothing to bring to God. Can anyone this morning acknowledge that you have nothing to bring to God? Nothing. I love the song. It would have been really cool if we just, because I didn't communicate with Natalie, but if we could have sung the song, but we sing it a lot and it's one of my favorites, the old hymn, Rock of Ages. Think about the lyrics of that verse of Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless look for thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Have you ever come to the Lord Jesus with that kind of desperation? I got nothing to bring. I got nothing to wear. I got no way to cleanse myself. I am desperate for your intervention, Lord. Are you living right now with this confidence? Do you trust in God's mercy alone and not in your vain efforts, not in your empty hands. If so, this is what Jude's talking about. If that's the way you're living, you are keeping yourself, you are guarding yourself in the love of God. In persevering in faith and supporting through the church the perseverance of the believers around you, you are guarding yourself in the love of God. And this is the mean, this keeping ourselves in the love of God instead of in our own efforts is one of those glorious means that God uses us to save us, to uses to save us to the uttermost. Lastly, in this list, Jude tells us that we should be found waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Though we struggle to remember and to guard ourselves in the love of God, we who have believed are given a promise that Christ is coming to redeem us from the danger of false teachers and even from our own frailties. I don't have to wait for Joel Osteen to trip me up because I'm really good at tripping myself up. Right? He might be an easy foil, but I'm the more troubling person in my own life. I look in the mirror and I say, man, that guy can cause a lot of trouble. But Christ is coming to redeem us from the danger of the guys outside of us and, the, and that wicked person that lives inside of me. And that day will come when he fully reveals his mercy to us in the last day. God has promised on that day that he is going to make all things new And everything contrary to godliness will be destroyed forever. All of it. It'll be gone. 
Second Peter 3, 7 says, But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. That day is coming. It's not a fairy tale. It's coming. But we're told by Jesus that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Jesus will reveal the fullness of His mercy to us as children. You've experienced His mercy now, and it was enough to save you. But someday it's going to be enough to redeem you and make everything completely new. And you will be completely saved. Understand what I'm saying there. I'm not talking about your spirit. The little Casper the friendly ghost part of you on the inside is going to float up to heaven. I'm talking about God is determined to save every part of you, body, soul, spirit. And the day is coming at the day of our great resurrection when every part of you is going to be saved by the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Jude turns his attention in our text to the very important work of showing mercy. So he's told us, sure judgment is coming to false teachers False prophets, false believers, they will be judged. I just mentioned it. But because of grace, listen to this carefully, because of grace, some of those people who will be judged may not be fully hardened in their hearts yet. Again, I keep saying it, but that's good news. Why? Because if they're not fully hardened in their hearts, some of even those people might actually be saved. And what a wonderful thing that will be. What a wonderful thing. And because you and I are not God, can we at least agree on that? Because we're not God, we have no way of knowing who God has chosen to save, do we? So we have to faithfully call people to repentance through the gospel. This is what Jude means. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Listen, some people have embraced false teaching simply because they don't know any better. Let's take another. I've been interacting with the little polling of you today. I'm going to do it one more time. How many of you can confess this morning that you used to believe things that you now regard as false doctrine? Raise your hand. Whoa. Look around. Don't put your hand down. Look around. Everybody look around. Look at that. That's crazy. Guess what? I have two. I'm one of you. I'm so thankful for both the mercy of God that led me to the Bible and to people who could make that biblical truth clear to me. I'm so grateful for that. But instead of out-arguing people on the internet who have not been revealed the same things that I've been revealed yet, we should be more like Philip. Do you remember the story of Philip? He approaches the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading the scroll of Isaiah. And instead of going and saying, you sinner, you pagan, you're going to go to hell. Don't get that Bible out of your hands. It's too holy for you. Doesn't do any of that. He walks up to him, reading the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And then he just begins to open up the gospel through the prophecies of Isaiah to this man and he's saved and baptized in that moment listen we are never given scriptural wisdom as you're growing in god as you're discovering new things as your truth is becoming more refined in your heart as that's happening you're never given that scriptural wisdom to boast or to feel superior to others amen but we have to regard ourselves as hungry people who can tell other hungry people where to find fresh bread That's the idea. We show mercy to those who doubt. 
Next, he says, he gets a little bit more serious. He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. His use of fire here is not the first time he's used that imagery in his letter. And there's a very good reason for that. A basic essential of solid Christian doctrine is that hell is a very real place. And sharing the gospel requires that we realize that we are placing ourselves between the lost and and the very fires of hell. That we are doing that as an act of priestly intervention. And I want you to just pause a moment. Seriously, this isn't just a tactic. I want you to pause. I want you to think. Pay pay attention to my words and, and think about your friends, your family. And ask yourself this question. How close are my friends, my loved ones, my co-workers, my children, my parents, and my neighbors, how close are they from the place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die? A place that Jesus described as, as consisting of weeping and gnashing of teeth. How close are they? A moment it's tragedy, a, 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 just an instant of a heart stopping, a, a breath ceasing, could find themselves in that place forever. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was a great theologian from the 18th century. He was a part of the first American Great Awakening. And, and he said these words in his most famous sermon ever. He said these, these words directing them to the lost. And listen to the terror of these words. He said, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution, your own care and prudence, your best contrivance, and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. How can you and I, how can we who have been saved not look with pity and mercy on those who are destined to be damned that we interact with every single day? How can we not be pleading with them to entrust themselves to Christ's everlasting mercies? How can we ignore this as it is our calling, it is our task, it is our holy occupation? What else in your life matters more than warning the lost of God's wrath? What matters more? Jude goes on, To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What does he mean, mercy with fear? Well, while we're called to be people of mercy, we are never to underestimate the seductive power of sin. We're to keep an awareness of our own weaknesses so that we might show mercy with fear. In other words, it's that old adage that there but for the grace of God go I. There is nobody 
so wicked in this city right now that given similar circumstances, you could have found yourself in the exact same place. Nobody. And so we're aware of that and, and, and we tremble before God as we try to extend mercy. And, and, but he means more than that. It, when he says, show mercy with fear, it, he's saying things like it's probably not best. If you're here today and you're a recovering alcoholic, it's probably not best for you to go out every Saturday night and evangelize in your local saloon. Probably not a good idea. If you're an ex-fornicator, you don't want to be a fisher of men at porn shops and strip clubs. Amen? Doing this would be foolish. Why? Because sin is incredibly seductive. It can lure you in and, and you never see it coming. I, I, I put that last analogy in because I, I actually heard a testimony of a guy who's living for the Lord now, but he talked about when he first got saved, he, uh, he went to go be with his buddies and with the full intention of sharing the gospel, went to the strip club with them, and, and both got drunk and got into all kinds of trouble while he was there and lived in condemnation for, for months after that because he just should not have been there in the first place. Why? Sin is seductive. It wants to hook us and bring us back in. And this is part of what it means when Jude says to hate even the garment stained by the flesh. Sin is certainly not to be practiced, but it's also not to be cherished or tolerated or memorialized. I have known, and perhaps you have as well, many believers who have practically bragged about who they were before they came to Christ. I don't get that. I have so much shame about who I was before Jesus found me. But I've heard people brag about how violent, how drunken, how promiscuous, how irreverent, how materialistic, how greedy they were. What an insult to the Savior. Can you imagine me talking to my wife and saying, honey, you're great, but I used to date this girl. It's funny, but it would be horrible if it actually happened, wouldn't it? And do we do that to the Savior? What an insult to the Savior to brag about those we used to, to be seduced by instead of the love that found us. We have to learn to despise any memory of our past life apart from Christ. Sin was never your friend, but it always was the cause for your destruction. And so while we show, must have to, while we have to show mercy to the most immoral, we should also work, we should not work too hard rather to, uh, relate or be relevant or find common ground. Instead, we who are saved should call the lost to the higher ground that is found in Christ Jesus. So, uh, uh, Gabe and I have been talking about this a lot, that um, one of my pet peeves, one of the things that really kind of gets under my skin, is when a, a church or a ministry or a pastor will talk a lot about, oh, we got to be relevant, we got to be relevant, we got to be relevant. Let me just say real quickly, I know what they mean, I understand it, I'm sympathetic to it, but let me tell you something, there is nothing in the entire universe that is more relevant than you are a sinner and a Savior died to save you. That applies to every single person on the face of the earth. If you used to be a drunk, I don't have to be a drunk to relate to you. I just say, hey, you're a sinner. I was a sinner. Jesus saved me. He can save you too. There's no better way to be relevant than to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Y'all are getting me wound up this morning. So Jude concludes, and gratefully I'm about to as well, with one of the most beautiful benedictions in the whole New Testament. And it serves as kind of a bookend to his total message to the saints in these 25 verses. He began, we've mentioned this a few times, he began verse 1 by addressing his letter to those, remember, who three things, who were called, who were beloved in God the Father, and who were kept for Jesus Christ. That's who the letter is addressed to. And now, watch this, he concludes by lifting his voice in praise with these words. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Mm -mm -mm. Kept for Jesus Christ. Kept from stumbling. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What a great benediction that is. Though we've been instructed to keep ourselves in the love of God because of, you know, the, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, our propensity to misunderstand that, we are reminded here by Jude that we are not keeping ourselves, but we are kept for Jesus Christ and that He's the one who's able to keep us from stumbling and to bring us to the end blameless and with great joy. A new theme is emerging from Jude's words, not only do we contend for the faith, but the false prophets who have been designated for destruction. That's what Jude says in the early verses. He says their their condemnation was was, uh, just proclaimed, declared long ago. They're designated for destruction. They're careening towards God's righteous wrath. But by contrast, God's people are kept by His power. It is by God's gracious design that you and I do not find ourselves swept into the the demonic doctrines of false teachers. It's by the grace of God that we don't fall prey to that. It is not by our wisdom or by our discernment. It would be impossible for us to know truth apart from God's keeping power. And therefore, none of us who know the truth have any room whatsoever for boasting. None of us do. Jude isn't saying that we won't, when he says he's able to keep us from stumbling, he's not saying that we uh, we won't struggle or that we won't have to do battle with indwelling sin. All of us have experienced that or are experiencing it. He's saying that in the end, here's the good news, you will not be lost. Because you're kept for Jesus Christ and he's able to keep you from stumbling. God is able to keep everything that's been committed to him in faith. And that's you and that's me. We belong to him. And Jesus says in John 10, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Guess what, guys? You are heading towards completion if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Oh, you may be in a mess right now. You may have all kinds of struggles, all kinds of battles, all kinds of weird thoughts, all kinds of of sick temptations. But Jesus is going to keep you and carry you all the way to the finish line. He is bringing you to completion. At the day of Jesus Christ. See, God's purpose in keeping us from stumbling is that he, as Jude says, may present us blameless at the last day with great joy. I told you to imagine earlier your friends who were lost, but just again, pause again and imagine, try to imagine, because you won't be able to do it. But try to imagine what it's going to be like when you stand before the Lord Jesus, seated on his throne, and let me correct myself, no one's going to be standing. We're all going to be face down in worship. As we are before the Lord In that last day, imagine what it's going to be like to stand before him free from sin. Now, we are forgiven. We have imputed righteousness from Christ. But none of you, myself included, have ever stood before the Lord without the burden of indwelling sin. None of you have ever done it. But a day is coming. A day is coming where you will stand before him you'll fall before him completely unburdened by all those pesky little sins that trip you up all the time try to imagine it try to imagine what it will be like to 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 be there in his presence with a conscience that has absolutely no stain of guilt and if you can even touch on that even if you can get the smallest inkling of what that will be like, you understand why Jude says that you'll be presented in his presence with great joy. None of us, not one of us, there are no exceptions. Not the Pope, not Billy Graham, not the pastor, not anybody has ever known what it's like to be fully unyoked from selfishness, from lust, from anger, from greed, from laziness. None of us have ever worshipped the Lord with unending stamina. Or, more importantly, none of us have ever worshipped with the full realization of Christ's worthiness. We've never known what it's like, and Gabe and I were talking about this as well the other day, we've never known what it's like to love God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our souls, and with all our strength. Never known. But we will. How can worship last an eternity? Because then you'll know. Then you'll know. But you'll not only know, you'll know, the Bible says, as you are known. Your conscience will be clear. Your sin will be forever put to death. And you will stand there with nothing better to do than lavish praise on the one who made it possible for the rest of eternity. You can't even begin to understand that now. I can't even begin to understand that now. But it is the reality. It is the hope in which we are anchored. Someday, because of God's keeping power, every hindrance is going to be removed. And we will know what life truly is. 
Here we live out our days, daily marching one step closer to the grave, but not when we get there. This is what uh, the psalmist said, said in, in Psalm 16, 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. What greater stimulus do you need to give your life in praise to the Father? Jude directs praise to the only God. He ignores all those concoctions of the false teachers. He says, you're the only God. He says that to him be great or to him be glory. And he's speaking of great honor. He says to him be majesty, meaning he is greater than all. He says dominion, meaning that his sovereign rule knows no boundary. He says that to him be authority, meaning that he rules over all creation. And he concludes by acknowledging that God always has been what he will always be when he says that glory, majesty, dominion, authority have been God's before all time. There has never been a time where God was less than what he is now. But guess what? He brings all those attributes into today when he says, not only is he for all time, but he is God now. And then he projects them far into eternity when he says, God is and forever. And so before all time, now and forever. He's the same God. He is not changing. There is no shadow of changing in him, the shadow of turning in him. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God is keeping us for our joy and for his glory, his majesty, his dominion and authority. And he will keep us now and for all eternity. We who have fled to Christ need not fear stumbling. We need not fear failure. We need not fear damnation because of God's great mercy revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And that is the hope of those who have believed in Jesus. I'm going to ask you all to stand and we're going to receive communion today. I am so glad to be able to share this with you because this, this commemoration of the death of Jesus Christ, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood reminds me and let it remind you this morning very specifically that you are kept. You are safe in the hands of Jesus, but not because of anything you have done. Because the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was broken for you. His blood was poured out. And because of that, because of that, you have been rescued from darkness. And as Peter says, brought into his marvelous light to worship him forever, to show forth his glory. So let's do that this morning. Amen. I'm going to invite you to come. Go ahead and receive the elements. Go back to your uh, seat and we'll take them together. I know you're still coming through the line, but just as you go back to your chair, just pause. And um, sometimes when, when I have had, you know, the kind of weeks that we all have, I will spend a moment like this just telling God how sorry I am for whatever failure, which are usually many, that I am guilty of. But what I want you to do right now is I want you to intentionally, by faith, thank God that he has washed away all of your sin and that you are kept for Jesus, and he is able to keep you from stumbling forever and ever and ever and ever. So just bow your heads and take a moment and thank him for that. No one is going to snatch you out of the hand of God. 
not even you. Jesus, you prayed in John 17, you said, all that the Father had given you, of that number you had lost none of them. And Lord, 2,000 years later, that's still true. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we belong to you, that we're kept by you, that you're able to keep us from stumbling and present us before your glory with great joy. Lord, I ask for my brothers and sisters, for myself this morning, that you would allow us to experience a foretaste of that great joy this morning as we partake of these elements. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup. Let's give thanks. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you took our place to fulfill the law for us and that you took our punishment for not fulfilling the law, that you were beaten, that you were crucified, that you were mocked, that you were humiliated. And Lord, we thank you that because you are holy, that the death could not hold you, that the grave could not be your prison, but you came out three days later alive. And Lord, the life that you live, you have given to us. For I have been crucified with Christ, yet, and, and nevertheless I live, yet not I, but the life I now live by the faith of the Son of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. If you would, just place your hands in a, in a receiving position and uh, a posture. I, I could not think of a better benediction to read over you than Jude's. So I'm going to read it again. <clears throat> now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.